Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, July 7th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 to 24. The Lord commands his prophet to write down all his words, words that now turn to comfort his people with promises of healing and restoration. Double sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today. We have with us returning guest, Pastor Joel Hawk. Pastor Hawk serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Rochester, Minnesota. Pastor Hawk, welcome back to Sharp Ryan. Thanks, Pastor Apple. It's good to be with you again today. As we get started today, Pastor Hawk, let's talk a little context. We're turning an important corner here in the book of Jeremiah into chapter 30. Sometimes this section, starting with this chapter, is called the book of comfort. I've heard it called the book of consolation. What's going on in the book of Jeremiah at this point? What are we going to start to encounter over these next several chapters? Yeah, so after, um, or beginning with chapter 30, um, all the way through 33, as you mentioned, known as the book of comfort or consolation, um, there's a, a little more of a general theme of the hope and uh, consolation uh, for the people of God that have been you know, soundly condemned uh, throughout Jeremiah's ministry and the ministry of other prophets. Um, you know, while the impending doom of judgment and of exile and displacement is still in the background and still mentioned, um, hope is clearly given here that this isn't God's uh, final word and verdict. Um, you know, we're always looking for uh, law and gospel throughout uh, the Holy Scriptures. Uh, we're, we're finding them throughout, and so this section, uh, we might say, is where the gospel begins to predominate um, a little more for uh, Jeremiah and his uh, and his ministry, um, even if it is a little more predominantly on the law side. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've we've been through with Jeremiah over and over this preaching of judgment, condemnation, exile is coming, and now here in, in this section, there is a pretty distinct turn. And I think the text indicates that there is a bit of a turn as we're going to hear the Lord tell Jeremiah to start writing this down. And this isn't the only reference we have to Jeremiah writing things down in the book. But the fact that it's mentioned here, I do think, indicates that we are starting a, a new section and, and and we'll see it in the tone. I mean, you're just going to pick up on more of these promises of restoration. Certainly, the the theme of, of judgment doesn't go by the wayside, but con- consolation, comfort is going to come through particularly in these chapters, beginning in chapter 30, going all the way through chapter 33. Any more introductory comments in terms of context, this section, anything on Jeremiah as a whole before we start digging into the verses we got? Um, yeah, I think just to, you know, to, as you mentioned, that he, you know, he's writing down these words. Um, these are words that God obviously wants him to remember and for the the exiles to know and remember, uh, you know, probably as they go into exile, uh, hoping they would bring bring this with them and uh, Jeremiah could, uh, you know, hand it off and say, you know, keep this in mind, um, even as uh, you're in the disturbing times of, of exile, I know that uh, God is uh, here to comfort you and will be with you um, and has these promises of hope for you. Let's take a look at a little bit of the text then. We're in chapter 30 today. These are the first few verses of Jeremiah 30. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. 
For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. And those are the first three verses of Jeremiah chapter 30. Pastor Rock, you you suggest that these provide an introduction not only to chapter 30, but to the book of comfort as a whole. What, What do we see in these verses that's important to notice? Uh, we, we see these. We see in these verses um, certainly, uh, you know, the important reminder as, as comes, you know, often in the prophets. But uh, I always like to point it out to people that uh, you know these, you know, these aren't the prophets' own thoughts. It's not the prophets' own musings or interpretations. They're not just kind of, uh, you know, meditating on on things. Although that may be a part of what God, that God is at work in their hearts with. But you know, this word is is coming directly from uh, from the Lord. It reminds us of Second uh, Peter one. Uh, where we read that, you know, we know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture ever comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, and, and we, as he, you know, spoke directly to them at various times um, and places as well. Um, and, and, you know, this, this book and this speech of God seems to go through um, much of chapters 30 through 33, and that's why it seems to be an introduction to this whole um, section that's kind of tied together with this comfort and consolation of God restoring the fortunes of the people, bringing them back to the land, um, allowing them to take possession of it again as uh, the inheritance that he had given them. He says that he's going to restore the fortunes of his people, and he specifies Israel and Judah, which given Jeremiah's context, writing when the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, has collapsed, to mention both of them together here, again, at this transitional point within the book, seems like a pretty significant moment. Yes, yes. And, and later on, we'll hear um, the Lord you know, also use the name Jacob as well. Um, and that seems to be another marker that uh, God is, God is you know, helping Jeremiah envision the, uh, the reunified uh, people of God, one people uh, from one source, uh, not only with Jacob as their father, but God as the one who made them, who called them who chose them. Uh, we see God's grace, you know, in still calling both uh, Israel and Judah, all the tribes, my people, um, even though, as you mentioned, the northern kingdom has been, uh, been collapsed for uh, almost a century, um, depending on exactly when these words are coming to uh, Jeremiah. Um, and just that reminder that even when we seem finished, you know, God isn't finished in his ability and his desire uh, to rescue and save us. Uh, he is ever and always uh, the shepherd seeking the lost sheep, uh, you know, as we see so clearly portrayed, uh, you know, to us in in Jesus and his parables of of you know himself as the shepherd seeking the seeking the one, leaving the ninety nine to go find the lost. Uh, that that's who God is, and that's who He portrays Himself uh, here through Jeremiah. The two things that the Lord says He's going to do right out of the gate are He's going to restore the fortunes of His people, and He's also going to bring them back to the land for them to take possession of. It. What's the significance of those two promises the Lord makes to Israel and Judah? So the first one, restoring uh, the fortunes, you know, obviously there's the, the misfortune, if you will, of defeat and exile and uh, all the problems and upheaval uh, that will bring. Um, literally, the phrase is uh, from the Hebrew, I will turn back the captivity um, of my people. So you, you get the sense of what God is, is planning to do there. Uh, we do read it more you know, idiomatically uh, just for our own benefits as restore the fortunes, but uh, but it does also speak to um, that captivity and that exile the people will experience. Um, this fulfills God's word to them all the way back in uh, Deuteronomy, um, as he sets before them the blessings and curses that could come upon them in the land, um, upon their faithfulness to him or their forgetfulness of him. 
uh, he, he says, you know, should these curses have to come upon you? Uh, he, then he turns again in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 3, and says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey, obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And that was given to the, the people of Israel, the unified people as they came out of Egypt, and so, you know, God in, in calling out to Israel and Judah, um, again, is just fulfilling his promises as he does time and again, uh, saying, you know, here's what I said I would do, um, and, and I still do promise to do it, uh, and uh, we'll do it for you. What about the promise of, of the return to the land? Why is that important? Yeah, so the, the land right, is, is the marker of their, their inheritance from God. Uh, part of the promises given uh, even to to Abraham, your 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 seed, your offspring, your descendants will uh, will take possession of this land that uh, that I am giving you. Um, it was the place of God's presence and promise um, and rest uh, for them, where uh, He would clearly be their God, providing for them, ruling over them, uh, being with them in mercy and grace, uh, and uh, giving them you know in, in ultimately the, the promise of rest from their enemies at every side as they uh, conquered the peoples and uh, dealt faithfully with uh, with Him. Uh, you know, for for us uh, in in these days after Christ, uh, we think of you know the, the eternal uh, land and the eternal rest and promise of of God that He gives us in in Christ of that uh, you know far better country uh, that He has in store for us, uh, not only in in heaven after we die, but also in the new creation uh, that He promises to to give and to send as as our inheritance. As you know, First First Peter three. Uh, you know, it indicates for us, you know, blessed be, you know, the God and Father of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, you know, called us and given us this uh, this great inheritance. Sorry, it's First Peter 1. Um, I misspoke there. But, uh, um, yeah, you know, he calls us to that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Uh, unlike the land, you know, we see the, the promise ultimately fulfilled um, in Jesus for us. With that introduction in place, verses 1 through 3 of Jeremiah 30, the text continues. More words. So chapter 30, beginning at verse 4. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why is every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. And that's through verse 11 of chapter 30. Pastor Hawk, one of the things that, that stands out to me about this chapter as a whole and this particular section is that there's these 
really, I mean, it goes from judgment to consolation just just with a snap. I mean, it's all of a sudden back and forth. We're going to see that throughout this chapter. Now, what what do you see in this this section? Uh, yeah, we see those uh, that sharp transition. We see, and in, in many ways, that reflects you know sometimes God's uh, uh, God's ways of working you know throughout all of Scripture, where just where it seems hopeless, you know, then uh, then hope comes. Just where uh, we see despair, uh, then God brings uh, deliverance. Uh, where the, the judgment of disobedience to God's law um, and the free grace of God's you know gospel love stand in sharp and bold contrast, uh, where where both are true and neither are uh, deluded. Uh, God's wrath, you know, has to take its toll in full measure on the day of the Lord, on um, the day of judgment. Uh, but His salvation and grace, you know, also come uh, free and undeserved. Uh, and so, uh, you know, for for us again, you know, on uh, this side of Christ, that uh, we see that uh, clearly in Christ at the cross. You know, not the great you know shrug of God over sin. You know, as if to say it doesn't matter. You know, that's certainly not uh, what He said about the sin and idolatry of the people of Jeremiah's day and before either. Uh, his, his wrath did have to be poured out, and um, it did have to come as he had, you know, threatened and warned and promised it would. Uh, but for us, we certainly see the, the full pouring out of his wrath on Christ in our place, um, that his salvation and grace comes to us, you know, full and free and undeserved, as it always does. Uh, even in, and I, you know, I appreciate that, uh, you know, ver- verse 7 uh, pointed to that starkly, too. It's a time of distress for Jacob, if he shall be saved out of it. Um, even through distress, uh, God brings um, his salvation, both uh, uh, you know the distress of Christ on the cross, uh, yet the rescue for for him in being raised on the third day, and the, the rescue that that wins for us, um, and even for for us as God's people um, in persecutions and troubles and trials, um, you know God invites us to see his his working of salvation and um, his presence and drawing us closer to him in faith, um, even in and through these things. Uh, so that we we have a new vision of of things when when things don't kind of look so good on the outside for us, uh, God invites us to see Him at work and uh, to hope and trust that He He will bring about uh, the restoration, the fulfillment, the uh, salvation and rescue that He promises. In verse six, we get one of these rhetorical questions, which we've seen in other places in the Book of Jeremiah and, and throughout Scriptures. The question, of course, is can a man bear a child? Which we we should say very clearly in our day and age, the answer is no. That, that can't happen. What's what's the Lord doing with this this rhetorical question? What's happening in the uh, this again? Verses five through seven. Or this really the distress section, the judgment. What's what's going on here? Right. Yeah. It's, it's a very powerful uh, you know image that uh, you know. Hey, this is uh, you know this is a, a troubling time, uh, and um, um, yeah, as you mentioned, you know perhaps uh, <laughs> perhaps it's a stark. Uh, and maybe not so rhetorical question in our day and age, um, but uh, but you know, God wants us to know the answer. You know, is no. You know, that uh, you know why why is there distress? Well, there is distress because God's judgment is coming. Uh, but for you know God's people who look to Him in hope and and great courage, um, even in the middle of distress, uh, we you know, we should you know as as we're encouraged elsewhere, you know, straighten up, lift up our heads, and uh, know that our salvation um, is drawing near, um, even in uh, even in these times of trouble and trial. Mm. In verse 7, Jeremiah says, it is given to say, alas, that day is so great. And and then in verse 8, you get a repetition of that phrase, it shall come to pass in that day. So I'm reminded of, of other scripture passages that talk about that day, the day of the Lord. And, and here Jeremiah's got it both as a day of judgment and as a day of salvation. It seems like he uses that word as a transition from that judgment in verses five through seven into proclaiming the comfort that's there in verses eight through 11. 
Yes, yes, and um, uh, you know that that day, even for you know God's people, um, in many ways, as is viewed as one that is kind of in sharp contrast. That there, um, though we look forward to it with uh, great joy uh, in in Christ and uh, knowing the full promises of God. It is the day when you know the deeds of all are laid bare, and um, you know all things are revealed before the throne of God. Um, and so you know, there's a sense, even in Scripture, that uh, the sins of of uh, believers, you know, will be, you know, will be in some way revealed, but uh, it'll also be revealed that they've been covered over in Christ, and uh, that they do not stand against us and will not be uh, condemned uh, because uh, we wear the robe of Christ's righteousness. Uh, and so, you know, that that time and that time of distress, there's there's none like it, uh, because it is, you know, the day of judgment. It is the day of kind of decision. It is that day when all things are revealed uh, before the righteous judge. Uh, you know, my mind goes to First Peter 4. Mm. Um, again, you know, that, that does remind us, you know, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Um, and the exhortation there is for us to, you know, endure the troubles and trials of this life, um, knowing that that day is coming. Um, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator, uh, while doing good, remind, remembering that God is faithful to his promises. He will bring us um, safely through that day in Christ. Uh, but to, you know, but to, you know, look at our lives, to come to him in humble repentance and faith and uh, to, uh, you know, to seek to do his will by the power of his spirit um, and not kind of, you know, shrug it off again, uh, because uh, God says we don't, we don't shrug it off. We, uh, we come to the foot of the cross in, in Jesus. With that language of that day being a day of distress in verse seven, and then that day of salvation in verse eight, how does how does that preaching of, of Jeremiah stand in contrast to some of the false preachers that we've heard him preach against in previous chapters? Yeah, the combination of of you know that day being there, and then uh, the language of breaking the breaking the yoke of off your your neck reminds us of, of Hananiah. In, uh, in, in his words in Jeremiah 27 and 28, uh, who, who did proclaim perhaps, you know, you know, and saw that things weren't looking so good, but proclaimed an immediate or at least very swift um, turn of events. Um, and as a sign of that, Hananiah had broken some yoke bars that Jeremiah was wearing at God's command. Um, and for Hananiah saying, you know, and well, Jeremiah, sorry, was saying that that was a sign that the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar and the next two generations after Nebuchadnezzar would come upon Judah and the surrounding nations. So uh, as a marker of, there's going to be a long time uh, coming here. Um, but, uh, but again, God says that only after, only after that time of distress, that time of judgment and chastisement and disciplining for his people, then he will break uh, the yoke. He will burst the bonds. Uh, but uh, uh, the people should expect it not to become, not to be terribly swift uh, for them uh, as Jeremiah proclaims elsewhere. Moving into that section of hope, beginning at verse eight, where again the the yoke is going to be broken and and the bonds will be burst. No more foreigners will be ruling over over God's people. Then there's a, a a talk of someone that they will serve, and particularly David, their king, whom the Lord will raise up for them. What's the what's the reference to David, their king, doing here? Well, especially after you know David's uh, death and in the prophets, uh, and there was this was this hope, and it was a messianic hope and, and phrase that uh, um, a new and faithful ruler. You know, David was described as one after a man after God's own heart. Uh, that uh, the Messiah would be um, such a ruler, uh, new and greater and uh, faithful again, you know, David. And so, you know, this was a marker for the people of of that hope. 
um, and expectation on not only a return to the land, but a, a faithfully ruling one over them to be um, king and shepherd. And those offices seem to go together, I mean, if not in the language of the general uh, culture of the day, and certainly in God's vision of what uh, an earthly ruler uh, should be, um, not only king and like the nations, but one shepherding, protecting, uh, and guiding and guarding uh, the people. Uh, and certainly, uh, you know, as, as we're studying it now, you know, maybe a couple months after the, the Easter season, you know, as we think about the one revealed as, as the Messiah, um, you know, there's kind of, you know, maybe we want to see a, a double meaning of that uh, phrase raise up. You know, certainly we talk about, you know, rulers being yeah. um, raised up to, you know, to power and prominence and authority. Uh, but if we think about our Messiah, uh, the Messiah, Jesus, uh, certainly we, our minds uh, easily go to the, the cross and the empty tomb. Um, and him being raised up for uh, for our salvation, raised up from the dead, uh, and then you know, raised up and ascended into heaven, reigning and ruling over all things for us even now. Um, I'm so glad you brought up the ascension because that's where I was going to with it. Yeah, I mean, I think that to see that I will raise up this, you know, David, their king, is is more than just put him in place as king, but but to do the very things that God did do for Jesus, his resurrection, his ascension. And again, you know, I think the ascension, particularly with this context of, you know, who are, who is truly your king? You know, is it going to be Babylon? Who are you going to serve them? Are you going to, who who is really your king? The ascension, I think, fits in very well with that. So yeah, that's, that's a fantastic insight. Now, Pastor Hawk, in, in verse 10, we get this command that we hear throughout scripture, fear not. I mean, over and over again, the Lord tells his people, fear not. What's Why is he telling his people, fear not, in this context of Jeremiah 30? And he's always having to tell them, fear not, because they're always uh, coming upon things that, you know, otherwise on the outside, you know, should, we'd say, uh, cause fear and terror, uh, you know, being carried off into exile, uh, war and destruction, and uh, um, the, the horrors of, of being surrounded by the enemy uh, for, for a time, the siege of the city, uh, and things, you know, things that, you know, again, on the outside, you know, should cause fear and terror. Um, but God's, God's word comes and pierces all of that. Uh, he says, uh, you know, as he always does, you know, I'm not, I don't judge and see and, and view things on the outside. You know, God sees things how they really are and how he intends them to be and how they will come out. Uh, and so, uh, God always wants uh, his people to be comforted that no matter what, um, the current or even future circumstances might be, he will, you know, we might say, he will come through um, in the end. God's word will prevail, and uh, what he has in store uh, will come to pass. So uh, whatever whatever context and uh, content that they seem to be enduring, um, they, they can hope in him. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the passages I like to share with uh, uh, people regularly is from, from Isaiah 43, uh, verse 2, uh, where the Lord says, you know, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. you know, it, when when you do these things, <laughs> as you go through these troubling and, and tough times, God is still with you. Um, he is, uh, uh, and in that context, too, there's a fear not, uh, for I have redeemed you, and, and you are mine. So this, this hope and promise that God is with us in the middle of trouble and trial, that we are still his people, even though these things come upon us, um, is a very, very powerful comfort and hope uh, that we, we can give to one another and uh, give to uh, the people around us uh, as we go through the, the troubles and trials of life. Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, notice the, as you pointed out earlier, the the large scope of the language. You know, we're talking about Jacob, my servant, 
Israel, not just Judah, but but the fullness of God's people is, is who we're talking about here. And and the fear not, it does, I, my mind went to Isaiah as well to hear the the echo of chapter 41 in, in the prophet Isaiah, I think is, is spot on that, you know, in this moment, do not be afraid because the Lord will do what he has promised. There's there's no need to be to be afraid. Uh, in the in the lectionary during this Pentecost season, uh, we we heard the the text from Mark four where Jesus is in the the boat with his disciples going across the Sea of Galilee, and and of course the storm rises up and they become afraid and wake him up. And Jesus says, "Peace be still to the wind and the waves." And and then he turns and questions them, and it is about their their fear. You know, why why were you afraid? Now, he was there in the boat with them, and he had made his promise that they were going over to the other side of the lake, and so there was no need to be afraid. And and here for his people Israel, his people Jacob even in their, their captivity, that fear not because the Lord will fulfill his promise as, as he always does. I think, I think Pastor Hock, you, you mentioned the words uh, with, with you. What a, what a small phrase and yet so powerful there in verse 11, where the Lord says, I am with you to save you. Yeah, and then those, uh, and those words uh, in, in context and as we uh, you know, understand them from the, the languages uh, uh, to, you know, it brings to mind, even if not the exact phraseology, the, the promises of Emmanuel and the name of Jesus, um, Yehoshua, um, and uh, the, the root of salvation. Um, and so, you know, the ground of, of the exhortation not to fear, the, the ground of the promise of uh, perfect rest and security that God will give to his people um, is his presence and his salvation and his presence to save uh, that, again, come to, to awesome fulfillment and fruition uh, for all people in in Jesus, uh, the Savior, Jesus, Emmanuel, uh, Jesus, the one who uh, brings uh, salvation for all who trust in him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite something to see those two phrases right next to each other, which is precisely the way you know, Matthew does it at the opening of his his gospel, where he, he says the promise from Isaiah that, that the child is going to be called Emmanuel, and then he gives the name Jesus, and, and right there here in Jeremiah as well. Anything else in verse 11 that, that we should see, Pastor Hack, before we go to our break? No, I think we've, uh, well, let me just speak to that, you know, the, the disciplining there that God uh, promises to bring, um, you know, again, uh, I'll make a full end of the nations, he declares, but I'm not going to make a full end of you. There will be discipline. Uh, I'm not going to leave you unpunished uh, for your sin, uh, but you are still my people. Uh, you know, we we'll use the word remnant sometimes for these these faithful few who will be returned or just, just the, uh, the the group that does uh, come back. God will never make a full end of his people, um, even in the Old Testament. That's his promise, never to completely uh, wipe things out, never to completely wipe the slate clean. Uh, and now for us, right, because our slate has been wiped clean in Jesus already. And so there there are always the faithful, and uh, they will they may receive discipline. Uh, they, they may receive uh, the uh, you know, what needs to come uh, upon them uh, because of their sin, but it won't be the full measure of God's wrath uh, because that's been poured out and because they are on his treasured possession. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO, studying Jeremiah chapter 30 with Pastor Joel Hawk. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, July 7th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 to 24 with Pastor Joel Hawk of Trinity Lutheran Church in Rochester, Minnesota. Pastor Hawk, prior to the break, we made it through verse 11 of Jeremiah chapter 30. We're picking up now in verse 12. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. And all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. And all who prey on you, I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. Because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. We'll pause there. That was through verse 17. So, Pastor Rock, just thinking about those verses as a whole, again, it looks like we've got that really sharp contrast. Your wound's incurable, and then all of a sudden, it's going to be healed. What? How do we see this text hold together? These these verses. Um, I, again, I think one one of the ways we can uh, see them is, is the human perspective versus the divine perspective or or ability. Uh, you know, God says, uh, "Hey, from a human perspective, all that you have done and, and what's going to happen to you and come upon you, uh, this is fatal. Uh, this is the end of a people. This is the end of uh, of what uh, I can do." Um, for you and uh, what your God is able to do, uh, you know what happened to the nations in, in the context of those uh, times was often seen as a uh, kind of indication of the power of their God. And so, uh, when when Israel would go down, when Judah would go down, uh, there seemed like their God was going down too. Um, and God says, "Hey, your your sins and guilt are real and abundant, and the punishment I, I am bringing upon you uh, will be just." Um, but again, um, that that mercy for God, especially. Um, you know, especially when his people are um, denigrated, when his name is uh, uh, put low, um, God is very uh, you know, jealous. It's the one context in which God is called jealous, jealous for his name, jealous for his people, um, desiring that uh, uh, that he get glory in and through his work for them. Take us into the opening image that we get there in verse 12. It's it's an image of medical care. You've got a hurt, a wound, and, and the, the idea of medicine. What's, where is this image coming from? What's being communicated there in this, this incurable hurt? Uh, yeah, the, the, the pain and um, you know, infliction of, of wounds that, that sin brings upon us and our relationship with God and, and others and um, you know, the uh, the way that, uh, that the nations are, are coming against uh, Israel, um, you know, again, from a human and earthly perspective, um, there, there is no, no healing for her in that way, just like uh, we, we cannot deal with our, our sins on our own either. Um, and to, to, to then kind of flow into the, 
um, the context of the next verse, verse 14, and these you know, the lovers that have forgotten um, Israel, you know, all those uh, nations, the former uh, earthly allies they sought after, the the other gods that they um, ran after instead of um, their instead of their god, the god of the covenant um, of of Israel. Um, none of them are coming to their aid. In fact, they're turning their back on them, and certainly the, the idols were nothing anyway. Uh, so they continue to be such, um, but their their earthly uh, their earthly help is obviously then um, gone away, and and the wounds that Israel has inflicted upon itself. Uh, but not only them, but you know God Himself does say, you know, I have done these things to you. God Himself has inflicted uh, some of this, as He said He would, because of their idolatry, because they turned um, away uh, from Him. And, you know, as we look back, we think, well, you know, or tempting to think, well, of course, Israel should have seen that these gods uh, and images of stone and bronze and gold, you know, would be unhelpful. Um, but, you know, as we look at our own day and age and our own lives, you know, all our earthly idols, uh, whether they have a face and a statue or, you know, or just the other gods that we run after and things we look to for aid over and above God himself, uh, when we don't... Uh, um, we first do not cry out to God uh, for for help in uh, in times of distress and trouble and trial, and we we uh, turn to our idols in our own hearts. Um, then uh, then these wounds you know can come upon us, and we can uh, get ourselves uh, caught in the cycle of sin that that ultimately does um, hurt and and destroy in one way or another. I appreciate you bringing out that you know the Lord does say I've done these things to you. It, it reminds me of the the call of Jeremiah, where the Lord says to Jeremiah, "I'm putting my words in your mouth. I'm setting you this day over nations and kingdoms to do several things: to pluck up and break down, to destroy and overthrow, and to build and to plant." So the, this this work of you know this incurable hurt, this grievous wound that has been caused by the people's sin, the Lord is responsible for that to do, and we've, we've said this sometimes, to do what we call his, his alien work. He, he allows that work that he really doesn't want to do in order that he might do his proper work, which is to, which is to save. And I, I think that's one thing, you know, reflecting on the text that we've got so far that you really see the stark contrast between that, how the Lord very clearly presents his alien work to his people, his work of, of condemning by his law and putting to death so that he can then move straight to his proper work of bringing to life in the gospel. And to, you know, as, we, as we're going to see here in this text, that this incurable wound that, as you said, you know, their earthly allies can't help them with, their idols that they've worshipped can't help them with. There is one person who can, and it is the Lord Himself. And just to see that, you know, that that stark contrast here, I think is is so helpful. Uh, one of the one of the things that that stands out here, Pastor Hawk, is in verse sixteen, as as it starts to make that turn in the text from you know, law to gospel, is that the very people whom the Lord had used to bring judgment on his people, they will not escape judgment either. That's something we see there in verse 16. Yes, and, and the reason for that uh, you know, is clearly shown in verse 17, because you know, in there and God elsewhere in talking about Assyria and Babylon talks about this because of the pride with which then they you know, exhibited over the people of Israel and, and over even uh, the worship of, of God himself, uh, because the uh, because God's tool got too big for his britches, <laughs> we might say uh, he will also um, cut them down. Um, and, and so, and it's very poetic, uh, you know, here in verse 16, those who devour you shall be devoured. Uh, um, your foes go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. All who prey on you, I'll make a prey. Um, and so um, God says, what, what I've used these people for uh, and people groups for will be, you know, that will happen to them as well. Um, again, a judgment upon them for their pride, 
but also then in my ability to restore health to you or my people and to heal your wounds. Um, again, because God is the one who has ultimately inflicted these wounds, only he can be the one to restore them uh, and to heal them and to uh, bring about this great reversal for his people. Talk more about that great reversal. That's a, a pretty important theme that we see throughout the scriptures. Yeah, and we certainly see it uh, as we do all the scriptures clearly in, in Christ and uh, him crucified and what God does for us there. Um, you know, Second Corinthians 5, that puts it clearly, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him uh, we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, God putting our sin on Christ and us receiving uh, the full righteousness uh, done there. Um, it, it also calls to mind, especially this context of God working for those who have, you know, in essence, rejected him and whom he has, you know, given this incurable uh, wound and uh, um, are in, some, in many ways against God and his work, uh, reminds us of Romans 5 and, and the way it describes God's work for us in Christ. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, we, while, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Uh, so, so in the New Testament, we see, you know, again, clearly our incurable sin, our incurable guilt, our incurable death now reversed for us in Jesus, so becoming forgiveness and uh, cleansing and eternal life um, that, uh, as Romans 8 points to us, you're not even in death are God's people separated uh, from him and his love for them in Jesus. He does always care for Zion, the place of his dwelling, uh, the, the people uh, that he has called by, by name, and he will act to uh, save them and restore them um, even when all hope looks lost. Yeah, that that very last phrase where, you know, people are saying about Zion, no one cares for Zion, the Lord will show who he is by caring for Zion and, and to give testimony to who he is to the world so that they, they too would come to him for this healing that he has for his people. That takes us through verse 17 of the text. Let's look at the rest of the chapter now. We're picking up again in Jeremiah 30, now at verse 18. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord? And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Jeremiah 30, verses 18 to 24. Pastor Hawk, in those first couple of verses of this section, it seems there's a an escalation. I guess really in just that first verse, it goes from 
tents, to dwellings, to city, to palace. It seems to be building on this as the Lord describes the restoration he's going to be giving for his people. Right, yeah, the, the tents and dwellings, you know, whether they, they live in them or they've been destroyed or they're just kind of temporary or not so um, great of shelters, yeah, they're going to be rebuilt and replaced by this this full city, including the palace, the dwelling of, uh, again, the promise of a king and a ruler to uh, to shepherd over um, the people of God. Uh, basically, uh, you know, again, that reversal of fortune, former lives being restored with great joy, as, as verse 19 talks about, the songs of thanksgiving that come from these uh, with the voices of those who, who celebrate, and there's place that there's place to grow and multiply, um, you know, and, and a great city shall be there, and they'll, they'll be honored. Um, and so the, the building up of God's people, um, his promises usually, um, he declares, are going to fulfill things in an even greater way than they were before. Uh, things will be even even better than before. Uh, we, we think of the fulfillment of God's promises, uh, not in just you know fixing things and putting them back the way they were, but making things um, even better and greater uh, by His mercy and grace. And that's the, the picture of what He uh, will do uh, for His people um, in the end. Well, and I, I think that you know that the God's going to make things even better for His people than they were. I mean, it reminds me of when you take a look at say Genesis one and two and the way the Lord created everything. And it was very good. And you think about the Garden of Eden and, and the just the absolute goodness of, of that. And then you you take a look at the end of the book of Revelation and the the picture of, you know, the city that we've been talking about, the the picture of the garden that's there, and how, you know, at the end of everything, which is not an end, it's just, a, it's, you know, life everlasting, that's not just Eden restored, but it's, it's Eden surpassed. And I think, you know, I mean, you see a picture of that here, already in what the Lord is promising in return from the exile, that it's not going to be just what it was before, but it's going to be even better. The Lord, I mean, this is the way the gospel works. The Lord just keeps giving and giving and giving. It's always more. It's always better. Indeed. And it's all, it's always from, uh, from him and to, uh, to him be all praise and glory, uh, that, uh, you know, he, he's the one who gives us uh, whatever honor, uh, we have, and that's that's the uh, you know humbling thing about it. You know what God promises in at the end of verse nineteen: I, I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. Uh, what, a, what a joyful thing uh, that is to be great and glorious and grand. You know, even uh, Christ promises in some ways ruling with Him uh, in glory and in eternity, and yet uh, you know all by His grace and His um, His glory and His power uh, to uh, to to be our Savior. Hmm. Take us into to verse twenty: the the children shall be of at, sorry, the children shall be as they were of old. Their congregation shall be established before me, and then I'll punish all who oppress them. So a promise of, of gift, and then a promise of, of judgment against the enemies. Yes, yeah, the, 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 the gift of, of good things from God, you know, combined with the, the promise that he'll do away with all things that will, uh, that would kind of take that goodness uh, and blessing away. Uh, you've got people under his watch, under his care, um, under his protection, that phrase that they'll be established before him. Uh, and and for, for my mind, that, that, that uh, reminds me of Jesus' words uh, to, to Peter and the other disciples in Matthew 16 about his church, uh, that Christ himself will build his church, and the gates of hell even shall not prevail against it. Um, the, the congregation of God, the people of God, will be established and firm and solid before him because uh, they'll be built on him who is uh, their rock and their fortress. Uh, and then, yeah, God punishing all who, who oppress uh, his people. Uh, again, it's God's desire that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so uh, we, we pray for our enemies as Jesus instructs us and for those who oppress us. 
uh, but the great hope of God's people. And uh, the reality is, God tells us in the scriptures that there will be people who oppress and harm and uh, put down his people uh, from time to time in various ways in various places. Um, and while we pray for them and uh, uh, seek to share the gospel uh, of the good news with them, um, they will not all necessarily turn. And so the, the ultimate hope is that God will one day um, punish, you know, not, not just the people necessarily, but finally do away with all things that are working evil in this world, sin, death, uh, the devil. Um, and and so that God will, will do away with all those things that would cause, you know, shakiness in our life, that would cause us to um, you know, doubt his presence with us and our, uh, you know, our solid foundation in him. In verse 21, we return uh, to that thought of the, the ruler. Earlier we talked about David, their king. Here in verse 21, we've got a prince coming from among the people and, and also a ruler. What, what, do, what do we see now? How does Jeremiah add to that picture of this coming king here in verse 21? Uh, yeah, so so again, the the promise of no more foreign rulers um, is coming from you know one of one of themselves. Um, this is and this is fulfilled for a time after the exile, at least in, at least in part. Um, as many prophecies uh, do have kind of a nearer fulfillment uh, to the prophet's time, but also um, ultimately that in in the Messiah and in uh, Christ our Lord. In fact, this this prince title here, Adir, in the the Hebrew is one of the ten titles of the Messiah in some Jewish traditions. So this was also uh, clearly used, at least in some Jewish circles, of of a messianic promise, uh, clearly for them as well. But then we see fulfilled in Christ, and that, that language of him, you know, being one of themselves and coming out from their midst um, for for us, knowing you know the mystery of Christ and who Christ is as the Son of God. Um, it hints at that mystery of the incarnation, that the divine Son of God uh, would yet be one of us, one of themselves, and come out from uh, their midst. Uh, as the people asked of Jesus as he was going about teaching and healing and, and you know doing some of the strange things and saying some of the uh, you know strange things to human ears that he was, you know they, they would say things like, you know, isn't this the carpenter's son? You know, we we know his uh, family, uh, don't we? Uh, how how did he get this power and this learning and this knowledge? Um, you know, why is he saying some of these you know strange things about you know eating eating my flesh and uh, I giving life to the world um, and things like that? Uh, all these promises also reflect uh, the promise of Micah 5. Uh, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, yet whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Uh, so uh, again, the promise of one from the midst um, who is you know, yet something greater than uh, the one from their midst uh, there in Micah. Um, the one coming from of old, from ancient days, uh, pointing us to that mystery of the incarnation of, of Jesus, the Messiah. That last part of verse 21 says, talks about the matter of approaching, you know, who would, who would dare approach the Lord? How does that fit into the picture of this king? Uh, yeah, there's this king uh, and that idea of drawing near to God. Uh, there's a couple of Hebrew words that are, that are classic words for drawing near to God. Um, holy presence um, in um, in certain contexts uh, in the scripture, and this certainly seems to be one of them. As this prince and ruler is is drawing near to God to do some uh, some holy work. Uh, in, in Exodus three, uh, Moses is told not to draw near uh, to the burning bush, at least until he takes his uh, sandals off. You know, because the ground is holy. Uh, in Exodus twelve, the sojourners and families. Uh, and their families had to be circumcised before coming near uh, to the holy celebration of the Passover uh, and being counted among uh, the people of God. Uh, it's the language of the priests drawing near to perform um, the sacrifices 
uh, and you know those who draw near to the Lord are are holy. Those who draw near to the Lord um, are are those who you know are called to do so according to a purpose. Um, and in in Korah's rebellion in, in Numbers 16, um, there's a, an interesting combination of these these phrases um, as well. Um, with this question that we read in Jeremiah 30, I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. Who would dare of himself to approach me? Uh, as Korah is uh, rebelling against Moses and Aaron, and uh, God is going to separate the, the faithful from the unfaithful there, um, he says, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, will he will bring near to him. Uh, so, so only those who God chooses and calls are called to draw near to him um, in this way. Uh, and the, this Messiah, this ruler, this prince, um, you know, in a role as also, you know, high, in a high priestly role, uh, will draw near to the Lord to make intercession and sacrifice for the people and to be um, the called servant of the Lord. And then you know, taking this step further, you know, we as God's people you know, called to be uh, priests as well um, are also invited to draw near in our Messiah, in the Messiah Jesus, uh, in the same fashion, um, you know, because the Holy Spirit calls us by the gospel and draws us near um, into God's presence in Christ. In verse 22, we have a very simple statement, but it's one that's packed with meaning. You shall be my people and I will be your God. That's That's Exodus covenant language right there. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Um, God being their God, them being his people. Um, this is, you know, these are the words that uh, God, you know, instructed Moses to, uh, to say them, to say to them, I am the Lord and I will bring you out uh, from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I'll deliver you from slavery to them. I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm, with a great act of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will uh, be your God. I mean, this is, this is God's covenant language of his relationship uh, with his people. Um, you are mine and I am yours. And uh, there's this exclusivity um, that's open to all, uh, but this is an exclusive relationship. And this is the basis of God's covenant relationship with his people, his basis for you know, his command to, to them and to us and to all people that have no other gods before him, uh, because he is our God. He is the one who made us. Uh, and now we, you know, know clearly has redeemed us in Christ and calls us by the Holy Spirit to uh, uh, to be His people and to uh, trust in Him uh, completely. Pastor Hogg, those last two verses of this section, verses twenty three and twenty four, are, are pretty familiar. I think they they showed up earlier in Jeremiah in a different context. What what's Jeremiah doing doing with them here? Yeah, so in Jeremiah twenty three, um, these are directed against um, the false prophets. Uh, and saying, hey, you know, look, this, this storm and wrath are going to come upon those who um, say they're from the Lord but are not, who are promising a false hope and a false narrative to the people and uh, proclaiming that, oh, this is, you know, this is only but a temporary and, you know, small setback that will happen, uh, you know, not the 70 years or so that Jeremiah is proclaiming um, as they're, you know, seeking to downplay Jeremiah and his ministry. Uh, but but here in in chapter thirty, you know, in the context of this book of comfort that God's giving His people um, for you know their ultimate hope and restoration from and after exile, uh, He's directing them against the uh, the oppressive nations, especially Babylon, in the context um, here, and saying you know know that this is going out, this is going forth, and you know God will do this um, for and against uh, those people, so that you you my people might have hope even in the midst of it. Pastor, we got just under four minutes left on the morning. Reflecting on Jeremiah 30 as a whole, then this book of comfort that we began today, 
How would you summarize it for us? How does how does this text point us to Christ crucified and risen, our Savior? Yeah, and I think um, I'm going to use the last the last verse here. Um, and some of the uh, the context is there uh, to to point us to Him um, once more. And the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has executed and accomplished the intentions of His mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. Uh, and, and at Pentecost, uh, Peter declared, uh, you know, inspired by the Holy Spirit, hey, we are in the latter days, uh, the days of, of God's ultimate fulfillment of all things, because Jesus has been crucified, risen, and now ascended in glory. And this for them is, uh, for Peter, again, uh, revealed by the Holy Spirit, is the marker that these latter days of, of God's working um, in and among all people by His Spirit um, are, are for us. And so we have an understanding, we know the intentions of God's mind, um, of what he has executed and accomplished for us. Um, not only in, uh, and this, this fierce anger, you know, that God has over our sin and the judgment of the, of the wickedness of our hearts, um, that wrath is real, that wrath is there. Um, we don't just shrug off sin, we, we confess it and acknowledge it and, and mourn and sorrow over it, but we also trust that it's been poured out, God's wrath and anger, um, in the mystery of his plan from all eternity, that wrath and anger over sin has been poured out upon Jesus for us. Uh, and some, some words of Ephesians 1 that, that have a lot of other mystery and uh, things to appoint us is clearly of God's intention to do this for us in Christ from eternity. Uh, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as son through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we also get that inheritance uh, language again, the inheritance of the land that the people had received and that God promised they'd receive again as their possession. Uh, we have that an eternal inheritance of the new creation uh, when when Christ returns in his glory. Uh, but even now in Christ, uh, in the mystery of God's will, uh, we, we know the intentions of God's mind toward us, uh, his grace and mercy for us in Christ. Um, yes, his, uh, his judgment and wrath over sin uh, that leads us to confess it and uh, desire uh, and come to him in repentance but always trusting that in Christ uh, that has uh, come to uh, fulfillment and fruition for our forgiveness and God's mercy and grace for us. Pastor Joel Hawk serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Rochester, Minnesota, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 to 24. Pastor Hawk, thanks for being our guest today. Good to be with you again, Pastor Apple. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Jeremiah, comments on this series, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app and the open mic feature there to send up to a 60-second message to us. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.